0: Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog, Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger-in-chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality, OCDQblog.com. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we're going to talk about the mean old world of information quality, which leaves a lot of people with the feeling like they want to sing the blues, especially after they step inside the blue box of information quality and realize that it's a lot bigger on the inside. In order to help me tell the story of information quality and the story of why stories are important and people are cool... I'm very pleased to be joined by a cool person and special guest. Dara O'Brien is one of Ireland's leading information quality and governance practitioners. After being born at a young age, Dara has amassed a wealth of experience in information quality driven business change. From CRM single view of customer to regulatory compliance to governance and taming of information assets to benefit the bottom line, manage risk. And ensure customer satisfaction. Dara O'Brien is the managing director of Castlebridge Associates, one of Ireland's leading consulting and training companies in the information quality and information governance space. Dara O'Brien is a founding member and former director of publicity for the IAIDQ, the International Association of Information and Data Quality, with which he is still actively involved. Dara O'Brien was a member of the team. That helped develop the Information Quality Certified Professional Certification Program, the IQCP, and Dara recently became the first person in Ireland to achieve this prestigious certification. Dara O'Brien is a regular conference presenter, trainer, blogger, and author, and has two industry reports published by The Arc Group, the most recent of which is the Data Strategy and Governance Toolkit which we will discuss in part in our discussion today. Dara O'Brien, welcome to OCDQ Radio. Hey, Jim. Good to talk to you. I think where we should start is that age-old battle. Data versus information. Two ubiquitous words, and people have a tendency to use them interchangeably. Help us out with a definition
1: of data and information. I always start from a slightly controversial perspective. I'm a lawyer by training. My background is a law degree. I come from the business side of this whole debate. So I always start from the point of view of what are we trying to achieve? In my experience and in my, my common usage when I'm dealing with clients, I use the terms data and information interchangeably. And I don't think that's a problem. As long as when you're using them, you understand that there is actually a difference between those things. Justice Potter Stewart in the United States Supreme Court, when he was asked to define pornography or obscenity, he, he didn't know what it was, but he, he recognized it when he saw it. Information and data are kind of like that. Data at its basic is a fact about a thing, some element or attribute of that thing. But in order for that to become useful to an organization or to an individual, you have to put some context around it. So data, for example, would be 087123456. You need to put some context around that to make it information. The context would be, well, that's a, a cell phone number. In fact, for that had to be actually usable information that could support action, that could effectively make it knowledge, you need to know a little bit more because 087 may not be a cell phone number prefix in your country. It is in my country. So you may need to add some additional data to that string to make it actionable and useful information. You may need to put a country code which is basically an additional piece of context that increases the strategic value, importance, impact, and usefulness of that fact about a real-world thing. In the consulting side of my business, we do a lot of work with European data protection regulations, and one of the requirements there is around the need to keep personal data private and around anonymizing information being used for statistical purposes. And this is where the context issue can become very important because there were studies done a number of years ago around internet search logs, not by Google, but by some of the other search engines. I think it was AltaVista sponsored the research, where when they took enough data of searches, they could identify clusters that could identify a household and potentially an individual, which raises some concerns for me in the context of big data. At what point do you have such big data that it becomes difficult to keep it anonymized in situations where you have to keep it anonymized. At what point do you have so much data that you will always be able to infer a context, which makes it information? And at what point do you have so much data that you will be able to take action on that? That data becomes information and knowledge. The counterbalance is also true. At what point do you have so much big data that you have so much you don't know what to do with? I agree with you on the basic definitions. I'm a
0: dragnet fan when it comes to data. I- Data is just the facts, ma'am. I like the way you break it down in your report, just to summarize that data are facts about things. Information is facts about things in a context that gives them meaning. And knowledge is facts about things in context that gives meaning and supports action. Ultimately, the value of data is a function of its meaning, which makes it information, and its purpose, which gives context to that information. So I think a lot of times people, do use the terms interchangeably, but thinking of data and information as two separate things and information as data in context, I think helps people understand quality challenges in the sense that you can have high quality data, but not necessarily have high quality information because the data is independent of context and it may be of high quality in and of itself. But once you add context to it, that's when you can start to get into some struggles in terms of understanding the quality. And as you quoted Tom Redmond in the report, the ability of data to be applied in multiple contexts for multiple purposes is one of the unique and special properties of the information asset. And possibly, uh, now to step outside of that quote, possibly one of the things that makes information quality such a difficult discipline.
1: That is one of the big challenges, Jim. Is is that because you have data can be fairly atomic and easily identified and ring fenced, but as Peter Drucker said back in 1994. He was writing about the, the forthcoming challenges of the information age and he identified that the biggest challenges weren't the technology challenges, they were the challenges arising from the meaning and purpose of information. And Once you start talking about meaning and purpose, immediately you're talking about context and you're into the issue that Tom has identified that data can be used for so many purposes and can have multiple meanings depending on the context that you're using it in across an organization or an in, in industry. And that's the fun side, but also the, the difficult side of, of information quality. It's a part of what I alluded to in the recent post on my personal blog, talking about Doctor Who as a, a metaphor for information quality leadership, where I, I refer to Doctor Who's TARDIS, how the big surprise is that it's bigger on the inside. Information quality, when you get into it, it's bigger on the inside because you start having to understand these wonderful intricacies of the data, information. There's always something else you can be asking about it
0: had said in the report that the final arbiters of quality are those who are ultimately going to be using the information and sometimes Mm -hmm. I think we get rather surprised when we approach the blue box of information and step inside and find a lot of users with a lot of different purposes for that information meaning that the challenge for information quality is often a lot bigger than we thought so with that in mind What are the best ways to approach trying to understand the information quality challenge? Because sometimes we can be overwhelmed and think, well, there's so many different users and so many different contexts and so many different purposes. Is it all just chaos that we can't get any control of?
1: Yes and no. It is chaos. And chaos by its nature resists control. But just like in the story of Pandora's box, when the the box was opened and chaos spilled out into the world, at the bottom of the box is hope. In my experience, the best way to start to tame the chaos is not to try and solve all the problems at the same time. And that's the mistake we often make. I know I made that mistake when I I began my career in information quality more years ago than I care to remember. There were problems, and because I was someone who solved problems, I'd try and solve all the problems. I think one of the things we need to learn in the profession is how to prioritize the problem, how to identify Which problems are big, hairy monsters that need to be corralled and contained, and which ones are big, hairy, audacious goals that need to be gone after? The problems are things like billing remediation in telco, where, yes, you may have a regulatory issue in terms of making sure bills are accurate, but the specific problem of is the bill accurate or not is... Probably not as important as the big, hairy, audacious goal of improving customer service through accuracy of billing, improving customer service or customer retention or customer customer satisfaction through improved quality of information. Uh, teletech services, the case study that Tom Redman has in his book, Data Driven, I had the pleasure of seeing them present at IAIDQ conference a few years ago in San Antonio. And their case study is wonderful. They had the issue of trying to figure out what this quality conundrum was and how to tame the chaos and what that would mean for them. They focused very much on accuracy of the data. They found the key dimensions of the data that were important to them for the big, hairy, audacious goal that that they had. That's how, in my experience, it's the only way, really, you can do it is by stepping back, taking a deep breath, and trying to prioritize.
0: A lot of times people, like you said, try to solve every problem at once and it just becomes overwhelming and they can't make any progress. So in terms of identifying those big hairy audacious goals or identifying those key pain points, that might be a good place for us to get started. Do you have any recommendations for how organizations can more effectively identify those
1: pain points? I think listening, listening to what people are saying, listening to what the anecdotes are in the organization. Luang Yanke as the information quality manager for Air Energy in the US, has presented in the past on how his first approach to building the business case and prioritizing issues for remediation, for management in the information quality context, was to go and listen to the things that were causing people problems, the, the challenges that people were having. So in the organization, listening to the stories that are out there, and then trying to find some hard metrics to go with them because, as Deming said, in God we trust, but everyone else must bring data. The stories are good, but you need to balance them with some metrics so that you're you're able to bypass the, the politics that can be inherent in some of the internal anecdote and narrative and with them down to the, the real story that's there. And then when you go to implement the change, it's very, very important. Organizations, that the people embarking on an information quality journey, realize from day one that it does not matter how many data profiling tools you buy or how many ETL tools you have or how many metadata repositories you build. If you don't start by changing the people as well and the culture of the organization and how the organization thinks about information and thinks about the impact of poor quality information, well, then you are going to find yourself repeating this process over and over again. And while quality management is a cyclical process, there is an implication in the Shewhart cycle and continuous improvement that you're actually improving.
0: Well, getting back to the point of, of storytelling, I know that in your report, you had mentioned Stephen Denning and talked about how we can differentiate data information and knowledge And he mentions that the knowledge sharing stories that show an event of causal connections of events happening in time are the unheralded workhorses of the business. Stories tell us what is happening within the context of business users who are putting data and information to work in order to discover the knowledge or reveal the lack of knowledge that is causing the pain. Going out and listening to the stories that the organization is telling who are the characters in those stories and what is the story about maybe it's a story about our customers maybe it's a story about our employees maybe it's a story about our products but focusing on those stories learning from them and deriving from them the, the key pain points that we might be able to focus on in order to help not only just improve our information quality but tie our information quality into what the organization is attempting to achieve in terms of its business goals.
1: Stories are very important, both taking the anecdotes and structuring them that that you're capturing around the organization and structuring them as an analysis tool, but also as you're constructing the story yourself about what the change is and how you're going to go about it. One of the things that Denning recommends is that you write the story of the person who doesn't want to change from their perspective. Now, I've run this in workshops with clients in a data protection compliance context, where we go through cr- constructing the change story and then we get people to write the story of why, the per- why someone doesn't want to change. And what we usually find, and this is, a, again, here's a story from one of the clients I've run this with, in where we told the story of Michael, uh, who didn't want to change. He didn't want to implement the clean desk policy, which was which was there not just to keep desks tidy and pretty and keep life easy for the cleaners, but also because in this particular organization, they deal with a lot of sensitive private personal data and the internal policy is that they were to clean their desk away and put any working papers away, locked away at the end of the day. And there was one guy, Michael, who just wouldn't change. And when they drilled into what the story was and were trying to find out why Michael wouldn't change, Michael wouldn't change because he didn't like the guy who sat down at the desk at the far end of the office beside the filing cabinets. Therefore, he, he would do anything he could not to have to deal with that guy at the end of the day. I think the guy was his brother-in-law or his ex-brother-in-law or something like that. But as we drilled through that, uh, I saw an opportunity find a simple change. And I asked the question, why don't you move the filing cabinets? Three days later, they moved the filing cabinets and their clean desk policy was being implemented. And that's what you can do using stories as a, an analysis tool almost as well as your data profiling to capture your hard metrics and your quantifiable data about what the problems are. Stories give you qualitative information that you can use to identify potential root causes and potential ways of implementing small changes that can lead to a quality improvement. Well, that's an excellent point. And one of
0: my favorite books is Switch, How to Change Things When Change is Hard, written by the Heath brothers, Chip Heath and Dan Heath. And one of the points that they make in the book is that oftentimes what appears to be resistance to change is actually just a, a lack of clarity about what people are actually being asked to do. I think a lot of times we have very ambiguous statements like, we are going to improve the quality of information in this organization. Wonderful statement, but what exactly does that mean? What do I have to actually do differently for my day to day activities in terms of understanding what exactly has to change if, if our information quality is going to get better? So, have you encountered any techniques that can help people be more clear about what's expected of them and and, and what exactly is going to change in order to have better information quality?
1: It's very important from the point of view of constructing your change messages that you need to be specific and you need to be able to set a very clear vision about what is going to happen. One of the techniques that I've used is one that was introduced to me by Andrew Griffiths, who was at one point a, a director of the IIDQ. And Andrew, ex McKinsey consultant, is a big fan of methodologies and frameworks and this is a he brought a methodology to the iodq called the value delivery framework this basically puts the process of defining your goals into a, an externally focused framework rather than saying that we're going to build x number of widgets and we're going to try and find a market for those widgets you say well what are what widgets do the customers want and more importantly what outcome does the customer want to have from doing this and then how do we go about delivering that So you start by identifying the key resulting outcomes that you want to have from the development of your product or service. And then you work back from that to identify how you will achieve that and how you will communicate both the key resulting outcome and also the mechanism by which you'll be delivering that key resulting outcome. Michael Lanning, the guy who developed methodology, gives the example of the Polaroid camera, the Instamatic camera, developed by Land when his seven-year-old daughter at her birthday party said to her father who worked for Kodak at the time, daddy 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 I want to see my photos now and at the time he was using a box brownie camera and that couldn't happen so he put put his mind to developing the instant camera to solve the key resulting outcome of how do you get the picture now? How do you get those Kodak moments now? From an information quality point of view we need to be asking ourselves what are the key resulting outcomes that the end user of the information wants to have and those key resulting outcomes could be that a regulator wants to know your variance on accuracy of billing will be between two and five percent over the course of a year across your entire customer base otherwise there's penalties and that's an outcome that they want to have so they need to work back what are the things you need to put in place to make that happen and how will you communicate that that's happening you can then say what's the key resulting outcome that staff would want to have from this information quality change it may be being able to get out of the office at 5.30 on a Friday rather than having to keep running reconciliation reports until midnight on Saturday. That's a good key resulting outcome that people can get behind. And how you would achieve that is the message you have to start constructing. And that feeds into the traditional change management model of creating a clear sense of dissatisfaction with the status quo, creating a clear vision of what the future would be if you were to implement the change, and then having some clear next steps that feed into that change vision and move you along that particular path. And then you can start building stories and narratives around that to trigger that change and make people want to do it. The springboard story uh, that Denning talks about in his work, that's the story you tell to create the desire amongst people to change. And then we're into set golden territory, because the one thing about stories is that they are the means by which the idea virus gets transmitted. Because we're social animals, and when people start talking, they talk in terms of stories and narrative. They don't talk in terms of PowerPoint presentations showing the statistical variation in the completeness of a certain field. Blasphemy! Obviously, all important information is conveyed via PowerPoint presentations using statistics. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes. Well, that's what they teach you in business school. But in life, we're social beings. We communicate through stories. I obviously agree.
0: I think one of the challenges, though, is that within the organization, we're really collaborative storytellers. And Tom Redman has, has pointed out that one of the real challenges for us in trying to get a hold of the data quality and information quality issues we may have within the new organization is the disconnects between the point in time when the data is created and when the data is used. Mm-hmm. So the collaborative story that the organization is telling, or to go back to the the camera analogy, the Kodak moments that were happening, the person who's the photographer who's taking the picture, and then from that point at the far end, maybe the executive far downstream, who's seeing that fully developed picture, which might be a highly summarized report, might not realize all of the steps that happened in between in the dark room dealing with those data quality issues in order to help develop the core data that went into the report. And then someone maybe in the art department prettying up and doing a little some CGI effects to make some aspects of the photograph look a little bit better. And all of that went into collectively telling the story or producing the photograph that goes into what people look at at the end of the data supply chain, to use a a term from Jill Deshaies, that says, okay, here's the information and the knowledge that's coming to me, but most organizations, we can't see that whole group of storytellers or that whole photographic process that the organization Mm -hmm. is going through and it makes it very difficult for people to see. Well, I don't think we have any information quality issues. I see these pretty pictures and these pretty numbers and these reports that I'm looking at. So we're doing fine, everything is just fine.
1: Yeah, and that's the the disconnect between managing on the vertical and managing on the horizontal. Managing on the vertical is when you're passing the information up the the hierarchy to the executive leadership. And if you're only managing on the vertical, the executive leadership aren't going to see the inputs and the, the magic tricks that have been done to create the information that they're seeing. And managing on the vertical also gives rise to the risk of executives asking the question that they want to ask and only wanting to accept the answer that they wanted to hear, which one colleague of mine who worked in the financial works in the financial services sector described as being one of the reasons we wound up with the global financial crisis. People lower in the organization knew there was a problem, but people higher up didn't want to hear that there was a problem. so they discounted any information that was coming up that was indicating the existence of a problem. When you start to manage on the horizontal or think about information on the horizontal and put in place mechanisms by which you can collaborate across the silos, and this goes back to Deming's 14 points, breaking down barriers and improving the pride in a job well done, then you can start to make it clear up the food chain in the organization where the issues are, where the barriers are, and by creating some of those collaborative stories and by allowing your stories to become a little bit organic Allowing them to live and grow and get more detailed and more refined. For example, the story I gave earlier on about the need to move the filing cabinet. There may be another story about associated with that about the health and safety issues about moving the filing cabinet. There could be a barrier to doing that, which raises other issues that senior management need to deal with in the organization. So it's allowing your stories to become organic and share them and crowdsource them. Let the, the virus get out a little bit. But the problem then is that you need to constrain that in a certain way. Stephen Denning talks about having the anti-story, which is the story you fire out to kill a rumor or to prune back a branch of the story you don't want to be developing or to kill the counterpoint story that's emerging that might be simply motivated politically. So there is a balance there to strike and being able to harness all that is a challenge. And that's, again, going back to the blue box. That's part of the blue box. This is bigger on the inside.
0: Well, I think one of the challenges in terms of the crowdsourcing and the collaborative storytelling and getting the idea virus to spread is that the vertical orientation of of most organizations almost inoculates against the idea virus that originated in another vertical silo. Mm -hmm. Most organizations are naturally vertically aligned into different functional areas like sales and finance and a line of business orientation. If you have multiple product sets or Mm -hmm. in the insurance industry, maybe life insurance, auto and home insurance. I've written about the need to become horizontally vertical. You still have some vertical specific activities. You know, the salespeople do need to focus on selling. The finance people do need to focus on the general ledger. But there are things that need to be horizontally coordinated across those vertical silos. And I think that's where sometimes the organization fails the basic organizational mathematics test. The sum of all silos is actually a single enterprise. If you have five functional silos, 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1, not 5 but sometimes it's very difficult to get people to think horizontal when most of their day-to-day activities require them to think vertical. So Mm -hmm. how can we get people within the organization to think more horizontally vertical?
1: Well, thinking horizontally vertical, that's an interesting challenge. And to an extent, the tools we have available to us now in terms of things like Microsoft SharePoint, internal blogging, technologies like that, that allow you to expand your reach, the same Types of technologies, tools, and approaches that we use external to the organization that you and I use to promote our businesses, Jim, that professional associations and organizations use to promote their agendas and messages. Those same types of tools, technologies, and strategies can allow you to pull the story out into a demilitarized zone almost that can float above the historical silos. And because you're telling stories rather than pointing fingers, and this is an important step that organizations need to go through. It's an important maturing step that information quality professionals need to step through in order to be able to use narrative to help trigger and sustain change. You need to step away from pointing fingers and start telling stories. Just like all quality management, root cause analysis needs to be completely blame free and focus on the issue. So if I'm doing a root cause analysis with a client and we go through the Ishikawa diagram and we find that the root cause of the problem is the actions and activities of individuals in a particular part of the organization, we don't point the finger. We say there's an issue there and the solution needs to be X, Y, Z. Likewise, when you're pulling the stories out into this internal blogosphere, you want to make sure there are stories that tell the high-level issue with clear examples of where the problem was, rather than saying everything would have been fine if it wasn't for Bob and accounts. We got to find Bob and accounts. It was all his fault.
0: Too often, that the stories that we tell are blame storming sessions. Nothing brings a group together better than coming together to blame everything on Bob. Because if it's all Bob's fault, then it's not our fault and we have no responsibility for the Mm -hmm. issues in the organization. So I agree we have to stop pointing fingers and we have to start telling stories, productive, positive stories that help, help us move forward. So helping us move forward towards a conclusion, one of the excellent points that you raised in the report is that while there are a myriad of tools and best practices available to draw on, it is important not to lose sight of the fact that organizations don't change people change. Recognizing and addressing the human factor in your strategy is a critical success factor. Or perhaps as
1: the doctor might say, people are cool. As the good doctor in Doctor Who would say, people are fantastic. People are cool. People are what changes organizations. People are what make an organization. People are what influence and bring about the culture in the organizational tribe. If all you're doing is throwing technology at it, people will use the technology but they won't necessarily find the problem. Technology won't find the problem. You need people to find the problem. You need people to be in an environment where it's okay to put up your hand and say, I don't think this is going to work, or I think we have a problem, or more importantly, I think we have screwed up. The number of times I've seen organizations where there's been a problem in terms of things like a leakage of data, a breach of data security, major information quality problem that's causing downstream ripples in third-party partners where somebody knew it was a problem but thought that they'd keep quiet about it. You've got to have an environment and a culture where you let people be cool, where you drive out fear and you let people be proud of what they're doing. And then you give them the tools that make that easier. But giving them the tools and asking them to continue doing the job in the same way, implementing governance frameworks that are tick box and checkbox driven Well, there is a phrase that I use to describe that, but I don't think it's suitable for polite listenership, Jim.
0: Well, there's a time for politeness and there's a time for telling it like it is. Dara, I think this is one of
1: those times where you should tell it like it is. Okay. That's called polishing the turd. No matter what you do, unless you're fixing the root cause, unless you're going down into the bells of the organization, no pun intended, and actually fixing your culture fixing the empowerment of your people, fixing the abilities of your people and capabilities of your people and allowing them to switch on and be cool. No amount of governance is going to actually improve the situation and no amount of technology or tools are going to actually let you sustainably fix the issue. All you're doing is continuing to polish a turd. Well,
0: people are fantastic and this has been a fantastic discussion with a fantastic person. Darrell O'Brien, thank you so much for being on OCDQ Radio. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can listen to the latest episode and featured clip, find links to the blog post summaries for every episode of OCDQ Radio, and view the schedule of upcoming episodes. You will also find the links to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes as well as via a non-iTunes RSS feed. And you will also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and email. Please let me know what you think of OCDQ Radio if you're interested in being a guest or if you're interested in being a sponsor. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio, and until next time. May the data quality be with you, always.